0: Go. Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. We are here to study the book of Matthew and we're at the end, toward the end of chapter 10 in the book of Matthew. So open your Bibles. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, there's some on the back table back there. Um, okay. I, I've been doing the quick review every week. So let me do one quickly for you now. Matthew is uh, Jewish. He's one of the 12 apostles. He's writing one of the four autobiographies, not autobiographies, biographies of the Lord Jesus's life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew has a very Jewish tone and flavor to his gospel. He is intent on proving that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, and the promised one, sent to Israel. To prove that in the first couple of chapters, we saw his genealogy that he is through the line of David, both on Mary's side and Joseph's side, his legal father. We've seen also that he has a second genealogy. He is the son of God. God was his father. We spoke about the virgin birth. We've seen Matthew prove that Jesus has a forerunner, John the Baptist, who's proclaiming he is the one uh, that was to come. He calls him the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world in the book of John. John the Baptist is going to come up in chapter 11 in an interesting way. We've seen Matthew, uh, take us to the wilderness after the baptism of Jesus, where the whole Trinity is present. The father speaks, the son, uh, sorry, the spirit descends in the form of a dove and Jesus is the one being baptized. Following all of that, there's the temptation in the wilderness where he's tempted not by his own lusts. He has no, no sin nature, but he's tempted by the devil himself and comes through that temptation with flying colors as the second Adam, just like the first Adam did not. The first Adam succumbed and sinned. This Adam said no to temptation, quoting, by the way, scripture every single time there was a temptation. Following that is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon or speech ever given, tremendous ethics and teaching and wisdom that could only come from God. After that, chapters 8 and 9 is all miracles. Matthew bunches together a bunch of miracles, depending on how you count, it's either 11 or 12, to show that he has power over all sickness and disease, over demons. He even has power over controlling nature, telling storms. pretty amazing. Uh, Chapter 10, he's sending out his 12 apostles on a sort of a short missions journey to spread the word about the Messiah. Do they know the full gospel, that he's going to die on the cross, rise from the dead, and pay for the sins of the world? No. No. But they are just saying what he's been saying, what John the Baptist has been saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're going to spread the word about Jesus, some of the wisdom they'll remember that he said. They will tell about the miracles that he did. But Jesus has given them in chapter 10 power to do miracles themselves, even to the casting out of demons. These guys are uneducated in terms of that, and he's going to give them that power for this temporary mission. Scholars differ as to whether it was as short as a week or as much as a month, but that's about all it was. It wasn't a big, long thing. They're supposed to stay in Galilee, which is northern uh, Israel, and not go into the big cities. Where we've come now is the end of his instructions in chapter 10, Uh, For example, verse 16, there's all kinds of warnings. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Be as shrewd as as serpents or snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. And he tells them about being handed over to local councils to be arrested and both religious and political persecution. Did that happen in this short mission journey? No. He's speaking prophetically about what will happen to people that spread the gospel in the years to come. In in any case, he keeps explaining that they will be persecuted. Look at verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death, all because of him and the belief in Christianity. He's saying that Christianity is so radical that those that don't believe are going to hate it. The unbelieving world hates Christianity to varying degrees, they show it. There are countries where you can get arrested for preaching the gospel or owning a Bible. Um, let's see. So he's saying in verse 26, this is all what we did last week. Do not be afraid of them. There's nothing concealed that won't be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. He's saying it's gonna go worldwide. This little tiny religion is going worldwide. It'll all come out that you were right, that they were wrong. There'll be judgment. God's gonna make everything right. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, we're gonna come down to verse uh, 32 in a moment. S- those of you that are here in person, so I know that you're awake, say amen. amen. Okay, oh, there's a sign back there. You don't need the sign, you can just <laughs> I love it. And those of you on Zoom, if you're awake, say amen or wave. I saw a sign go up. Oh, amen from Zoom land. I love it. Okay. Now we're at verse uh, 32 of Matthew chapter 10, which reads, Whoever acknowledges me before men or others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Um, There was a TV show in the early 60s called Secret Agent right? And there was Secret Agent Man was a Johnny Rivers song. Um, There's all kinds of people that do undercover work. There's no such thing as a secret agent Christian. No such thing. I'm a Christian, but I don't let anybody know. This verse says, if you're ashamed of him for any reason, we'll get to the reasons in a minute. If you're ashamed of Jesus for any reason and don't acknowledge him before men, he won't acknowledge you before his father, which is tantamount to saying you're not saved. When he acknowledges us is when when there's about to be a judgment day. For Christians, there is no judgment regarding sin. When my name or your name comes up, Jesus steps in and says, that's one of mine. I paid for all her sins, all his sins on the cross. No condemnation. Chapter Eight of Romans, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why we owe him everything. He paid uh, the biggest price for your sins and mine. He got the punishment you deserve. He lived the perfect sinless life you and I were supposed to live, and offers us his righteousness in exchange for our guilt and sin. Talk about a great deal. My garbage for his gold. Incredible. So, Don't read this verse and think, oh, you mean like you got to say it out loud. You do. That's not wrong. But that's not the only way you can deny him. You're not a Christian, are you? Oh, me? No. That's verbal, right? Or somebody's putting down Jesus in the Bible and you just, oh, I'm outnumbered here. I'm just going to not say anything. In a sense, that's denying him. Listen, with your silence, not with your words, right? How about this one? I'm a Christian. There, I said it. And yes, I'm getting drunk with my friends here, but that doesn't mean I'm not a Christian. That's a way of denying him. To be a Christian is to say he is my Lord, my boss, my master. What he says is what I, that governs my behavior. To go away from that, to steal at work, to use drugs, to sleep around, whatever the sin that besets you or me It's a way of denying him. So it's more than just words, but we have to be um, willing to put it out there and say it. You say, well, why wouldn't people just do that? If you're saying that, you must live in a Christian country where there's not that much persecution. The people at this time, Jesus is speaking, and after even worse in the book of Acts, they were told, don't preach that name. Remember? Peter and a few of the other apostles get arrested, and they are told in jail, don't preach that name. And Peter says, don't you love this? We must obey God rather than men. Translation, no thanks, we are going to keep preaching it. We have to acknowledge him. He's done everything for me. Nothing would hurt more if I'm your friend, and you see me somewhere, and I deny you. I'm not sure who you are. I'm with my other friends, and boy, that hurts. How much more the Son of God, if we deny him? If we deny him, he's ashamed of us, in a sense, you might say. So there's all kinds of ways to deny him. There's been a saying that's, or just a little story that goes around, that if you're, if you were arrested, theoretically, and the charge was, uh, Louise, or Jesse, or Joe, or anybody, uh, is a christian that's the charge would there be enough evidence to convict what they would look at is your calendar what does he do with his time well he's doing this and oh she goes to bible study she goes to church every week then they'd look at your checkbook what evidence is there this person's uh, oh they're donating to this helping hands a pregnancy oh yeah okay church yeah there's some evidence and. They might go to your house and find your Bible with this much dust on it, or they'd find it open on the kitchen table with writing in the margin and evidence that you're a believer. These things don't save you. They are the evidence that you're truly saved. One of those things is he tells people. She says it to her friends, to she's witnessing to people and what have you. Okay. It's a lack of evidence that might not convict somebody, meaning a lack of fruit Jesus talked about earlier. You know them by their fruits. Okay, I got to say one more thing about 32 and 33, and that's this. Have you ever denied him or kept quiet when you should have spoken up? I have. Is that it? You're out now. You're, You're going to hell. No, listen. Let me give you an example. Somebody that denied him three times, do you know who I'm talking about? Peter. I don't even know him. It was one of his best friends. It was his master. Peter's the same guy that said in Matthew, you'll see it when we get there. I say you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Remember that? That same guy said, I don't even know who you're talking. I've not, I don't know him. A slip doesn't, okay, you're out. You're, you're not saved. Instead, it's a lifestyle. First John says, no one who is born of God, a Christian, continues in sin. The tense of that verb is ongoing, habitual, lifestyle stuff. Not, I slipped and got drunk two years ago. It's, I get drunk three or four times a week. That's not just a slip. Do you see the difference? We might deny him. Listen, don't do it, right? He's our Lord. We owe him everything. But I wanted to mention one little slip doesn't open a trap door anywhere. Um, Whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Um, he's talking about being vocal about your Christianity. Now listen, I know that there's people that you meet in the store and you're in the frozen foods section and they say, "Are you saved? Have you found Jesus?" Sometimes you have to use a little tact. It's not part of the conversation. I like to pray. Lord, open that part of the conversation somehow. Honest to God, it happened to me today uh, where God brought the conversation around and around, started with COVID and a few other things. Before you know it, we're talking about Bible and God and creator and Jesus and church. And anyway, hopefully they're on Zoom right now. Um, okay, if you've been looking for a good slogan to put on your Christmas card? Verse 34 is not it. Whoever, uh, sorry, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What? Peace on earth, I see that on Christmas cards. Is that scriptural? It is, right? The angels announce peace on earth, goodwill toward men. What is he talking about here? Okay. The Bible often uh, mentions things that are the consequence, not the intention of what happens. It is not Jesus's desire to bring division in families or in human relations. That's not his desire, but it is the consequence. Because if you and I are become Christians in a non-Christian family, I'll guarantee you you're going to alienate somebody. In extreme cases, there are Muslim families where they hold a funeral for the person who became a Christian and get rid of them. You're out of the family forever. You're an embarrassment. You're a disgrace, kind of thing. So let's read that verse uh, and talk about it. Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. Ultimately, he does bring everlasting peace. Okay, we got to define what's peace. Two definitions. Globally, it means the absence of war. He will bring that in the millennium and in the eternal state, heaven on earth. Okay? Absence of war. But in a personal sense, peace is inner tranquility. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker that says, and you got to listen closely, no Jesus, no peace, no Jesus, no peace. Have you ever seen that? It's not spelled the same way. It's N-O, Jesus. No Jesus in your life. N-O, peace. You ever seen that? Below that, it says K-N-O-W. Know Jesus in a relationship, Lord as your Lord. K-N-O-W, peace. So in this case, he's saying uh, that it's it's in a way bad news. I didn't come to bring peace but a sword, meaning Christianity is so radical compared to the sinful world you live in that by nature, it's going to make people feel guilty, which will pull out, make the sword come out. It is never to be as it is in Islam. It is never to be us with the sword attacking It's to be, it's always gonna be supposed to be them. In Islam, they have a thing called jihad. Do you know what that is? That's them attacking outward. If you read the Quran, as my son did in Arabic, which he speaks, he said, Dad, I can boil down the whole Quran for you. The whole Quran is believe in Muhammad, Allah's prophet. If you don't, we will either subject you and overtake you and you'll have to live in subjection, or we'll kill you. Convert, or live in subjection, or be killed. There's no other possibility. There's no, let's all get along, can't we all just get along kind of thing. Uh, Killing is part of Islam. Death is part of Christianity, but Jesus' death to save people, way different. Okay, so, Isaiah 11, Luke 2 is the passage I read earlier, I quoted earlier, which talks about peace on earth. Jesus comes to bring peace. Listen, there's a third kind of peace. Absence of war, internal tranquility. Absence, listen, of war with God. You say, I wasn't at war with God. Oh, no, you were. Before you were saved, so was I. I didn't know it, but I was. That war is settled now between him and I. I'm on his side team in his army, and amazingly, he took me in. It's not Jesus's intention to bring a sword, but it is the consequence that naturally comes. What you're about to see is, and you've seen it already in this passage, government is not going to like Christianity. Religion, I'm going to show you in a second, is not going to like other religions, is not going to like Christianity. The other thing he's about to talk about is, even in, he did earlier, families. Isn't that interesting? Those are the three institutions that are the building blocks of society that God created. Family, human government, and religion. But not all religions. All the other religions are man-made. This is, this religion, Christianity, is God-made. Okay. Um, So to varying degrees, there is, on this earth not going to be peace, but a sword. Expect, he's saying, um, to be oppressed, persecuted, people to oppose the Christian message. 150 years ago, that you could teach in American schools, Jesus, God, Bible, Christianity, salvation. Try that now in most public schools. It's like a four-letter word, which they allow those now, but not, not the gospel, interestingly enough okay, now explain it, Jesus. What is this sword? Verse 35, I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies, sadly, I'm inserting that word, will be the members of his own household. Meaning, not it's a bunch of people fighting, it's somebody became a Christian, Brian became a Christian, and he's got members of his family that don't like that a bit. So there's going to be that clash. Maybe it's old friends of his his that don't treat him the same way now as a result, but there's the three institutions, the home, the government, and the uh, church. So um, he doesn't want families torn apart, but it's necessary. Interestingly, it goes so far as to say that there'll be members of the family that will not only dislike my Christianity, but might even have me killed There is a verse in the Bible that says that the time is coming, Jesus says it, Gospel of John, where men will think they're offering service to God by having you killed. You know who thought that? Paul. Such a devout Jewish Pharisee, legalistic Jew that he thought, I got to crush out this little cult called Christianity, this Jim Jones cult thing, and he arrested and killed Christians. If you don't think God has a sense of humor, who does God convert? Him of all people. It's incredible. Okay. Um, A time is coming. Do I know when? No. But a time is coming, Revelation 13, 2 Thessalonians, I think it's four. No, it's actually five, I think. In the end times, where it's all going to come together. What do you mean? A one-world government led by the Antichrist, who is a man empowered by Satan, who brings together religious persecution with government persecution. He ends up demanding, the Antichrist does, that we worship him or his image. Take a number on our hand or forehead, controls all commerce, controls religion. That's when the persecution ladies and gentlemen, will get heavy. In America, we think persecution is somebody made fun of me at the grocery store because I had a Jesus button. You ain't seen nothing yet. 11 of the 12 apostles end up dying as martyrs because of the gospel. If it wasn't true, all they would have had to say is, okay, we made it up. Let me go. They said, I know what I, I know. I know what I saw. I know what I heard. He's the Lord. He rose from the dead. So, um, there's going to be division. He's saying, expect it. Some of you have had family or have family members where there's now a rift because of the gospel. It's all worth it. We'll see that before we close the chapter. Um, remember in verse 28, he said, Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's God. Have a reverence. Reverend, awe for him. That's whose opinion matters. So a sword, even to the dividing of households, families, and what have you. Uh, Kind of a sad thing. Verse 37. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Okay, so I want you to understand what he's doing here. He's trying to move roadblocks out of the way for believers ahead of time. Jesus would be the last person to say family doesn't matter. One of the Ten Commandments is family, right? Honor your father, and mother. There's other scriptures in the New Testament and old about the same thing being true for parents being good to their children, taking care of their children, loving their wives, whatever, parents, all of those family relationships. However, uh, there has to be, listen, a priority. We're all familiar with top 10 lists, aren't we? happens in music. The Nielsen ratings on TV, it could tell you the top 10 shows that people are watching, or the book, the bestseller list, New York Times bestseller list, the uh, Amazon bestseller list. By the way, I can't resist saying all those book ones, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, which is no more, and New York Times bestseller list ain't true. What do you mean? I'll tell you what the best-selling book in America is. And it's not on the list. It's the book in your lap. The Bible is the best-selling book. Listen, every year in America, it's also the best-selling book in the history of planet Earth. Why don't they list it? Well, it's a different category. Why? It should always be number one because it is. How many here own more than one Bible? Anybody? Anybody own more than two Bibles? Keep your hands up. Come on. Is there any other book you own more than one copy of? I rest my case. Okay, that's going to be on the test. You might write that down. Just kidding. Um, Okay, Jesus does not want to be in your top 10. Number six, Jesus, you're moving up. I really, I love you, God. He doesn't want to be in your top three. He's got to be number one. Tim Keller has a sermon from New York that's called Crown Me, or kill me so that seems so extreme it's the truth because that's what every human being does they either crown him as Lord and Savior or they dismiss him they say like the Jews did crucify him remember Jesus has to be listen number one it may seem like why isn't he happy with number four that's pretty good Here's why. Because if there are three things in your life, whether it's family or friends or your job or your PhD or your fame or your good looks or your um, whatever it may be, ahead of him, that will cause you to deny him one way or the other. He's got to be number one. But by the way, this is not a guy with a big ego. He deserves, he should be number one. Here's why because he gave you the other nine numbers. What's number two, your spouse? Who do you think found your spouse for you? Your kids, who do you think? Your parents, your friends, who do you think was involved? Well, my talent that I have at painting or whatever, who do you think gave you that talent? He's number one. It's the only place you could be. Crown me or kill me. So this seems, I know, extreme. It's not. If you love your father and mother, He doesn't say, if you love them, he says, if you love them more than me, what you're liable to do is come home and go, dad, mom, I became a Christian today at young life. And they might say, oh, don't do that. Don't get, don't become one of those Jesus freaks. And you might, if you love them more, go along. You know why? Because it's human nature that you want to please the one that you love, right? Uh, I met my wife and we were dating and she wanted to go to the ballet in San Francisco. I went to the ballet. I don't like ballet. I don't like the music. I don't like the tights and the little dance moves. And I was so bored. If there was a 49er game on, I would have been watching it on a phone if they had them back in the early 80s, but they didn't. You know why? I want to please the one I love. Jesus can't be in second place. Father and mother is important, but you're not worthy of him if you if you have something ahead of him. You could insert money there and all the other things I mentioned. Um, here's another one, good health. What do you notice about these things? Well, good health is a good thing. Being a loving father or son, brother, those are all good things. The good things, listen, are the ones in which you and I have the most danger of idolatry with. You and I are not going to go worship some carved idol. We might put in first position something that's very good. Money is a good thing. Excessive greed, bad. But money is a good thing in proper balance, right? Anything that you put ahead of God can become an idol. Notice they're all good things. Okay. Now it gets even a little more intense in verse 38 because we've covered a bunch of stuff so far. He's left one thing out, and that's self. You know what I've got? What? My life. Billy Joel, I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. I call the shots in my life. I'm Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. Okay, read verse 38. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Okay, now we've, we've left the father and the mother and the sons and the friends and the job and the career and the, all the other stuff. Now it's come down to the base level. Do you love Jesus Christ enough that you love him more than your own life? Because I'll guarantee you, for most people, if Jesus is number one, number two is usually my life. I want to preserve my life. That's a natural instinct, is it not? Preserve your life. That's why we have reflexes. If a baseball is coming at me at 80 miles an hour, I might hopefully get my hand up or move out of the way. I just want to preserve my life. It's natural. If you throw me in an 80-foot deep lake, I'm going to just naturally try to get to the air to save myself. This verse is asking the question or maybe making the statement that even your own life can't be more important than Jesus. You say, well, I don't see that there. I say, take up their cross. Okay. We think of the cross as, you know, the cross, a thing you might wear on a necklace or around your neck or have a cross on your house or whatever. That's great. But to that generation, a cross is an instrument of torturous death. And if you take up a cross, guess who's going to die? The guy who took up the cross. You carried either the whole cross, if you were strong enough, and if you weren't, the cross beam to the place of execution. He's saying, let me put it in terms for today, um, hold on, I need to read it correctly. Whoever does not take up their cross, whoever does not voluntarily take up their guillotine, their gas chamber, their firing squad, are you getting the picture? Capital punishment. They're going to kill me. But the, those are all not as bad as a cross. Okay, so why am I taking up a cross? Two, two things. He's not saying every single Christian is going to have to die for their faith for centuries, for millennia. We've had a lot of Christians. Most Christians have lived and died and didn't have to be martyrs, but they had to be willing. Am I? Are you honest? I don't know. I I think I am. Might come down to it and I don't know, but by the grace of God and the spirit inside of you and me, we need to be willing even for that. So that's meaning number one. If it ever came down to it, what he's been talking about is don't deny me before men. Even if your dad or your mother or your kids ridicule you or your friends or people at work or you can't get ahead in the real estate business, being a Christian and talking about it, you might not get as many clients. So what? And now he's come down to the real brass tacks. Am I really number one or is preserving your own life, your own skin, number one? Taking up your cross, number one, means at least being willing that if they're saying, we're gonna kill everyone in this room who's a Christian, that you're willing to die. For a Christian, what did you lose? Nothing. You're gonna die anyway. What did you gain? Everything, right? Go into the presence of God. For Christians, it's a glorious graduation. Second meaning for this verse is this. Take up your cross, meaning daily, elsewhere it says, daily take up your cross. Because there's somebody else that has to die besides Joe. And that's the old Joe, the sinful old person that I was, has to die, listen, daily. Because I still live with those same desires and I'm learning, training myself, God's training me, to not look at them, to say immediately, God, take that desire away from me. I don't want that. I don't want that shiny object to make me want something that I shouldn't want. Dying daily to self means the old you, that battle that goes on. It's always in movies and cartoons. There's the good angel here going, don't do it, Joe. And the bad angel over here going, oh, nobody will know. Go for it, you wimp. Right? The two people on your little conscience thing, Dying to self daily means saying, listen, yes to God and no to myself. Whenever there's a conflict. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me. What does follow me mean? If I yelled right now, everybody, follow me, and I ran out that door, what am I expecting you to do? He's expecting us to go where he's going. Where did Jesus go? To the cross, right? Self-sacrifice for others. Follow Jesus. I'm following Jesus. You know that he died a torturous death, don't you? Oh, it's it's interesting that 11 of the 12 disciples died a death of uh, uh, martyrdom. Now to hammer the point home, verse 39, whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever, the, whoever loses their life for my sake will find it the reason my sake is in there is people lose their life all the time, right? Heroin addict dies on the streets of an overdose. He lost his life. He didn't lose it for Jesus's sake. He lost it because of addiction, right? What does it mean to lose your life for Jesus's sake? It's an idea of a throne, isn't it? Because the kingdom of God is a kingdom, therefore there's a king, which is Jesus, and there are subject, which is us. And the throne has one person sitting on it, Christ, not me, not you. Therefore, saying yes to God, no to self, absolutely. To find your life, they don't say this as much, but in the 70s and 80s, do you remember? Even 60s, maybe. I'm pretty old. Um, do you remember the saying? He, he, he took three years off of work so he could go find himself. Oh, he found himself. Now he's uh, an artist or he, whatever it may be. Listen, I don't want to find myself. I know what the old self was like. The less finding that goes on about that, the better. I want to lose that life. That's what he's talking about. And whoever loses their life for my sake is going to find it in the truest sense, meaning that the martyrs have a special place in heaven. It's in the book of Revelation. Uh, I think it's chapter six. Okay. These are paradoxes. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, let's see. Did we already talk about that? Yes. Uh, I want you to notice in verse 38 one particular word. I forgot to mention it. Uh, and your translation may be a little different, but you're going to have a possessive word there. Possessive. Okay? I could go out to the parking lot and say, that's Don's car. And that's Dave's car. And that's Sandra's car. Listen, this is. My car. Possessive. Look at verse 38 again. Whoever does not take up a cross, their own cross. Right? I'm not interested in whether you're dying for Jesus. Well, I am. But it, in a real sense, it's not. I have to focus on the fact that old Joe needs to be willing to die and dying daily uh, because of, you know, being willing to die for Jesus Christ. Whoever finds their life will lose it, whoever loses their life will find it." Galatians 2:23, Paul says, "It's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives within me. To lose one's life is to find it. The key is, for my sake, for the kingdom." I remember when I was vacillating on the fence. I was raised as a Catholic, some of you were as well. but in 1979, I really was on the fence, but I could feel God tugging at me, and I knew... This is wrong. This is right. I need to come to Christ. I remember thinking, I I have no doubts about the Bible. Did Jesus really live? And did he rise from the dead? Did God really create the world? I, I I was always like, yeah, no, I know that's all true. Here's what, Here was my stumbling block. Is my life going to be better or worse? Because I'm having a lot of fun now. Is my fun index going to go down where I'm going to be like I'm saved now? But what a bummer. All the things, when you become saved, what's interesting is, what used to look like fun just looks so stupid now. Getting stoned and getting drunk and sleeping around and all those things that were, this is, boy, this is really living. Is it? You really find your life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, these are paradoxes. You know what a paradox is? It's not two doctors. Paradox. Sorry, couldn't resist. A paradox is an apparent contradiction, but it's not a contradiction. Um, uh, The word paradox, by the way, is from the Latin means to seem to appear. It seems like that doesn't make sense. Listen, Christianity is a bunch of paradoxes. Watch. Uh, Let's see. To find your life, you need to let it go. You need to lose it. To keep your life, preserve your life is to, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to live for me. To to let that go is scary. Unless you know that the one you're letting it go to, his will is always better than yours. Central phrase in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done. You know why we pray that? Because I'm convinced, and you are probably too, his will is better than yours. I know what I want. Usually not the right thing. I know what he wants. The more I do that, the happier I am. Paradoxes. Receiving through giving. Freedom through servitude being under him. Um, God made the wisdom of the world foolish. The most valuable thing you have is the free gift God gave you, salvation. Um, Okay, more paradoxes. The Bible was written by men. Ezekiel wrote Ezekiel, and John wrote John, and Matthew wrote Matthew, and, and yet they're all written by the Holy Spirit. It's a paradox. Well, which is it? Both. Jesus was fully human and fully God. Paradox, right? The worst thing that happened on planet Earth was that the Son of God came in human flesh, and they whipped him and beat him up and killed him. That's the worst injustice, worse than what's happening in Israel, as bad as that is. And yet the best thing that ever happened on planet Earth Earth is that he was willing to die, and he died and rose from the dead. It's the best thing that ever happened. Um, Okay. Uh, Receiving through giving. Yeah, we did that one. Um, There's all kinds of paradoxes. Um, Let's see. Do we want to get strength through weakness? Receiving through giving. Jesus tells a bunch of adults, you want to know what the kingdom of God is? Be like these little kids. They have an innocence about them. They believe what you tell them. Um, Pretty amazing. Uh, Part of giving up your life is giving up your dreams. I have this dream. I want to be famous. I want to do this. I want to make a lot of money. All in favor of God's will but that's only half the story because this all sounds bad, doesn't it? I'm bringing a sword. You might have problems in your family and work and government might hate you and everybody might hate you. And, but the rewards are beyond calculation beyond how long do they last forever? How about that? There's nothing else on earth. You could say that about because your family, none of those things are going to last forever apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, He's, believe me, that's a lot of bad news. We're coming to the better and the good news. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, good. Um, mm-hmm. Verse forty. Here comes the good news. It's not going to look like it at first. It's really good news. Anyone who welcomes you, Christian person, man or woman, boy or girl, welcomes me. Jesus says, anyone who welcomes me welcomes God, the Father who sent me. You see that? What's he saying? I'm not sending you out as my ambassadors in a symbolic, touchy-feely sort of a sense. I'm sending you out as my ambassadors, ambassadors, as my sons and daughters, literally. Do you have children? Do you remember when they were little? If someone beat up your daughter or your son, would you just go, well, toughen up, son, take it? Or did you take it personally? I took it personally. God is saying, you represent me in a literal sense. So that if someone treats Doreen well because she's a Christian, God sees that in heaven as the same as treating Jesus well. Would you like to have Jesus over for dinner? Would you like to do something nice for Jesus? Have a fellow Christian over for dinner. Have, have, paint somebody's garage who's a Christian who needs help. The point is, God's saying our connection is more than just philosophical or mental. It is total. He's saying when you welcome somebody or they welcome you, it's the same as welcoming Jesus himself and God himself. It's a pretty astounding thing. 41 takes it a step further. Whoever welcomes a prophet, what's a prophet? Someone that represents someone else, speaks for someone else. When you're a Christian and you're speaking for someone else, it's Christ. Whoever welcomes a prophet, listen to this, receives a prophet's reward. Do you think the prophets are going to be rewarded in heaven like Elijah and Jeremiah? Or they're just going to have a little condo somewhere on 9th Street? They're going to be greatly rewarded, Moses' day. He's saying, if you welcome a prophet, a Christian, you will get a prophet's reward. Whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. After all this bad news, he's finally getting to the good news. That God takes it personally when somebody does something good for you, listen, or something bad to you. take it. He takes it personally. That's why God can say, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, do not repay evil for evil. Remember that? Let me give you an example. And we'll take our two minute break because there's treats back there and I'm going to eat most of them. Listen, the apostle Paul was called Saul before he became the apostle Paul. He was a Jewish Uh, Pharisee, a religious leader who believed Christianity was evil and he was going around like a bounty hunter rounding up Jesse because he's a Christian and throwing him in jail and having Jeff over here killed because he's a Christian and Jesus took it personally. How do you know that? Because on the road to Damascus Jesus knocks Peter to the ground and says Saul, Saul listen, why are you persecuting Jeff? Is that what he said? No. Why are you persecuting Jesse? What does he say? Why are you persecuting me? I take it personally. It ties into this verse. Go ahead, Ken. Oh, did I say Peter? I meant Paul, sorry. It was a P name, and I got confused at my age. Sorry. Paul, sorry. Peter, yeah. Uh, Why are you persecuting me? Paul is so shocked by that. He says, who are you, Lord? He knows it's God somehow, right? It's Jesus, because you're persecuting my followers. Why are you persecuting me? But the converse is true. Why are you being so kind to Jesse? Because he's a fellow believer. Jesus says, that's just like having me over for dinner. Let's take our two-minute break and go stuff our faces with some delicious treats. Make sure you say hello to someone in this room that you don't know. Very important. Those of you on Zoom, I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We're in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10, and people are eating a bunch of empty calories back there, and we're enjoying it, aren't we? Praise God. Anyway, um, let's see. So more good news is coming, and you're probably saying it's about time, Joe. Um, but those who treat you well, God takes it personally. God also takes it personally when those then some people treat you poorly. Um, so he's saying you have great value isn't he? Verse 42. Now he's really going to get to the nitty-gritty. Verse 42, and if anyone gives you, gives, sorry, even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you that person will certainly not lose their, what? Reward. It almost seems silly to me. Just for a cup of water? Listen, if it's given because you know that person is a believer and you're trying to bless a fellow Christian sister or brother for that reason, and it doesn't have to be water, it can be 50 cents, right, that you donate to some ministry, if you're doing it to honor God and not for your own self-aggrandizement, God sees that and says there's a reward for that. Speaking of rewards, the ultimate reward is knowing Christ Jesus, spending eternity with him. Amen? But there are varying degrees, we've said more than once, in hell, varying degrees of punishment, and varying degrees of reward in heaven. But even the worst position in heaven is beyond calculation how awesome it is. There is a judgment coming for believers that involves only... Rewards sins of believers are not punished. Jesus took our sins on the cross. Romans, as I said, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, then, what's the judgment it's in the two Corinthian books, uh, both first and second Corinthians mentions it. It has to do with rewards, meaning what did we do for the kingdom of God, and did you give Chris a little cup of water when he was out there working? little things like that, big things. Did you spread the gospel? Did you, There are re- rewards for those, but God sees your motives and your heart. And if you wanted the credit for it, you got it on earth and didn't get, that's wood, hay, and stubble that's burned up. We won't go there now, but it's in the notes. Okay. Um, look at that. We finished chapter 10. We're just going at breakneck speed, aren't we? <laughs> Those of you that have never been here before, we go rather slowly because we believe every word is from God. Why would you slough over? Let's speed read chapter 11. Why? Okay, speaking of chapter 11. uh, Yeah, we talked about that. Chapter 11. After Jesus finished instructing his 12 apostles, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. This is a formulaic statement Matthew uses when there's the end of a discourse or speech. He did it after the Sermon on the Mount. This is a speech. This is called the missions discourse or missionary sermon that he gave to the apostles, instructions for what to do, how long to do it, where to do it to whom, all of that. So that's the end of that section. Um, Interestingly, what I'm expecting to read in chapter 11 is, so the apostles went out in groups of two different areas. They came back. Let's hear what happened. Matthew's not interested. Doesn't tell us. He's more interested in the Lord Jesus. Doesn't want us worshiping Andrew and Bartholomew. It's all about Christ. So chapter 11, is interesting. As I said earlier, I won't review that whole list, but Matthew very in an organized way has been showing you Jesus is the Messiah because of his lineage, because of the miracles, because of the baptism, because of the temptation that he overcame from Satan, because of all the things he's done and said. Now it's decision time for the Jews. That's what chapter 11 is about. They have enough evidence. They have more than enough evidence. They have the Old Testament as well, which prophesies a coming Messiah, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. Um, he'll be betrayed for a close friend, by a close friend for 30 pieces of silver, which will be thrown in the temple and used by a potter's field. He'll um, have his hands and his feet pierced. He'll have his side pierced. He will be betrayed by somebody close to him who dips his bread with him. Do I need to go on? Born in Bethlehem, we already did that one, a descendant of David. It's time for them to decide. And sadly, in chapter 11, in varying ways, we'll see the Jews, for the most part, say no thanks. Rejection of Jesus. We'll talk about why that is, because there's so much evidence. Why would they ever reject this Messiah? But they do. So um, we're also going to see the word, uh, or at least the concept of doubt. And that's where we're going to camp for a little while uh, for an important reason. Um, oh, you know what I have on my notes, I forgot to say from the last chapter. Have, have you heard of the fable of King Midas? Everything he touched turned to gold, right? Um, just gold, whatever he touched turned to gold. Whatever you and I do for the kingdom of God turns to gold you mean in this world no it doesn't look any different but if you blessed Christ when he was in need that in heaven it turns to gold and i don't mean lick real gold i mean some incredible reward way better than gold how important is gold in heaven not you know how i know that stuff oh we pave roads with that stuff here it's just we walk on it okay so verse one we already covered So Jesus instructs his 12, they they go out, but he goes on and he's going to teach and well. he's not going to go to the Bahamas on vacation. He's going to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee, not Jerusalem. What's Galilee? Northern Israel. Think not New York City, not Los Angeles, not Chicago, not Miami. Think Louisiana, Arkansas, Illinois. No, not Illinois. Sorry, that's a bad example. He's kind of, Galilee's kind of hick country. He's going to stay up there, Nazareth, Capernaum. But that's where he went to the poorer people, not the city folks in Jerusalem. He'll get there. And uh, so an interesting thing happens in verse 2. When John, that's John the Baptist, verse 2, who was in prison heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him two questions. You ready? Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Are you the one? The one who is to come was a A phrase that the Jews understood if you said, I'm just waiting for the one who is to come. You wouldn't say, you mean your brother-in-law who's coming in from Texas? You'd say, the Messiah, amen. May it come soon, right? John the Baptist was the forerunner. He announced the coming of the Lord, right? Virtually every scholar, this is odd, and I agree though, says John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He says he's in the New Testament, Joe. Hello. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets, the Old Covenant. He's announcing the coming of the Lord, right? Okay. So John, um, three chapters or so from now, Matthew's going to give you the whole backstory, and so we'll wait till then, on John. The short version is Herod Antipas, um, is a lustful dude who's got a wife, but he's really attracted to his his uh, brother's wife. So he takes her and marries her instead, commits adultery. Keep it quiet. Don't, don't make waves. John doesn't live that way. John says, hey, it's not your wife, dude. You're committing adultery, you sinner. John is like Elijah. He tells the truth and ends up in jail. But I'm anointed from God, yes. But he's in a dungeon in jail. Sometimes doubts happen in dungeons. I don't mean literal dungeons necessarily. You're not going to probably be thrown into a dungeon. But you might have a serious problem, an illness. You might have a serious relationship problem. And in those times, whether we admit it or not, we kind of think this way, and it's wrong. I'm a Christian just reminding you, God, so nothing's supposed to go wrong in my life. Just reminding you, I'm, I'm hurting here, or I'm hurting, we're broke, and we got bills, and, or my wife, uh, something's going wrong, but my friends hate me. Nothing. I'm just reminding you, Lord, who said that? Nothing's going to go wrong for your life. He just got done saying persecution, division in families, religious persecution. Governments are going to hate you. You might say, expect that sort of stuff. Storms, right? But he's faithful through them. John the Baptist is in a storm. He's got to keep his eyes on Jesus. you got to give him, cut him a little slack. Because John the Baptist does his ministry, and they intersect very briefly, Jesus and John. They are cousins, by the way. We won't go there now, but they are. But they didn't see each other much. Um, John the Baptist and Jesus first meet when they're in the wombs of their mother. Do you remember? And Elizabeth got a kick out of that meeting, but that's a whole other story. (laughs) Sorry. They meet for Jesus's baptism, and shortly after that, What John says comes true, which is, pointing to Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. And it happened. Faster than John expected, probably. Now John's in prison, suffering, thinking, is he the Messiah or not? Okay, so John sends, verse 2, he hears about what the Messiah's doing. And I'm going to insert, he doesn't like it. What? He doesn't like it. Not according to my expectations. I'll show you why. Okay. By the way, there are scholars that think John's not really doubting here. It's a few disciples that are doubting. When I read this verse, John sent his disciples to ask him the question. I think it's John's question are you the guy? He said he was the guy. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the Lord. Remember that in uh, John chapter 1. Now he's having doubts. You probably won't doubt when everything's going really well in your life. If you're going to doubt, you'll doubt when, oh no, a storm, something big. Why me, Lord? In the negative sense. Okay. Um, Let's see. Uh, Keep your finger here But I want you to see, no, not that, Uh, isn't it Matthew 3? Gosh, it's in my notes somewhere, and I can't find it. I'm so sorry. John explains that Jesus, I think it's Matthew 3, that Jesus is going to come, and basically, he's going to clean house. Um, Look at, yeah, there it is, chapter 3 of Matthew, verse 12. He's talking about Jesus. I baptize you with water for repentance, John 3, 11. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, that's Christ. Whose sandals I'm not even fit to carry, that's Christ. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, talking about Christ, and with fire. Okay, here it comes, listen. And he's quoting the Old Testament, and he's not wrong. This is what the Messiah is supposed to do, verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing fold floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff, the sinners. He'll judge all the enemies of righteousness. Go get him, Jesus. He's in prison, and he's got visitors that come, his disciples. Oddly, they're still following John. They're not following Jesus, these guys, yet. Tell me what's he been doing, says John. They say uh, he healed a bunch of lepers. He what? He raised somebody from the dead a couple times, three actually. Oh, blind eyes can see, lame legs can walk. He multiplied a bunch of loaves and fishes and fed 20,000 people outdoors, and there was food left over. Okay, but get to the part where he just kicks butt and and he's not doing that. What? Why? Are you the one? You're not fitting my expectations. We do that, don't we? I have expectations. You better live up to my expectations. No. My expectations better come from this book, because if they don't, I'm wrong. Wait, you say, but that's in the Old Testament. The Messiah is going to come gathering all the righteous ones, raising the dead, and judging all sin. Well, is he the Messiah or isn't he? There are scriptures in the Old Testament that say just that. He's not wrong. But that's the second coming. Before we get to the first coming and what he's supposed to do, well, I better say it now because I'll forget at my age. The first coming, there's also Messiah scriptures in the Old Testament that say he's going to heal the sick. He's going to preach to the poor. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to touch lepers. He's going to cast out demons. He's going to do incredible things signs and wonders. And he's going to be betrayed by a close friend, pierced in his hands and his feet. And none of his bones will be broken, but he'll be killed, Isaiah 53, for the sins of my people. So what's going on here? Schizophrenia? No, there's two comings of the Messiah. The first coming, he comes to die for the sins of the world. The 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 miracles are just to prove who he is, and out of love, he can't resist. This guy's paralyzed. Bring him over here. In the name, you know, and he heals him. Listen, John's wrong because he doesn't have the God's timing thing right. John ought to listen, and you'll see it in a second. But here's the thing. Why doesn't Jesus just come here and judge all sin right now? What if he did? What if Jesus heard this question and went, oh, that's right. John said his winnowing fork is in his hand and he's going to clear his threshing floor, burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What if he did it right then? Guess who'd be left? No one. What do you mean no one? No one. Not even John the Baptist, not Elijah, Moses, anybody that was a holy dude. Why? Because he hasn't paid for the sins of the world yet. How's how's it gonna happen? The first coming has to be first. He's gotta die for the sins of the world. Otherwise, you ever ever hear people say this? If there's a God in, I had this discussion today. If there's a God, and I'm reading a book about this in fact, uh, Ken Ham wrote it. If there's a God in heaven, yes. And you say he's totally good, yes he is. And he's totally powerful, yes then why doesn't he stop all evil right now? Uh, Elton John had a song, not biblical. I'm not recommending it. It's called, If There's a God in Heaven, what's he waiting for? Answer, waiting for the last human being somewhere that will come to Christ, who's going to, he's got to wait for that. Because if he judges all evil right now, we're all in big trouble. Well, we're not, but at this time, there are no Christians yet, because he hasn't died on the cross and risen from the dead. So the first coming has to come first. So that's his question. Are you the one who is to come? Or is there somebody else? Did I get it wrong? Okay. What about John the Baptist? Later, he's going to talk in this chapter about him, what an amazing person he was. Jesus is going to say, up to this point in human history, when he's talking, John the Baptist is the greatest human being who's ever lived. That's what he's going to say. And yet, he's going to say, the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. What? the least, the worst Christian there is that's barely a Christian at all is better than John the Baptist. got it better. We'll get to why when we get to that verse, but I want to talk more about this. Um, By the way, this is the only place in the Bible where the word Christ, Messiah, see it in verse 2? In in Matthew, it's the only place where he leaves it solo because he wants you to know he is the Messiah, but John's got some doubts, okay? Have you ever thought about this? You can't have doubts unless you already believe. Because what are you doubting? I'm I'm doubting what I believe. In a sense, this is healthy. He's thinking, right? I mean, he does the right thing. Some people, when they have doubts, you know what they do? I'm not going to church anymore. I'm not going to that Bible study with the mustache guy on Tuesday. I'm just, I'm dropping out. What does he do with his doubts? take it to the source, go to the word of God, go in God, go to God in prayer. He'll always answer. So he does the right thing. Um, So he's expecting what the Jews are, which is a political Messiah who will take take over Israel, kick the Romans out and take charge, reward the righteous, punish all the wicked ones. That's the second coming. Is he going to do it? He is. When he comes back, he doesn't come back as the humble carpenter from Nazareth. He comes back in flaming glory. And there's judgment day for real and reward day for you. Awesome. But he can't do it now. The phrase... The coming one is in Psalm 40, Psalm 118, Isaiah 59 is all about the coming one. There are other titles for the Messiah in the Old Testament, the branch, the seed of David, the king of kings, the prince of peace. By the way, John in Matthew 11, he calls him the one coming after him. He's the coming one, the one that will show up. So John's question is the Only real question there is on planet Earth. What do you mean? Is Jesus the one who is to come? The one, capital O, the Messiah? Or should we look for somebody else? Maybe Buddha, Muhammad, Jim Jones, Deepak Chopra. It's the most important question. So John the Baptist you will see him in heaven it doesn't mean he's not saved you can ask him about his diet when you get there if he had this bible study there'd be locusts back there be thankful and i'd be dressed way differently okay um so he's in prison no wonder god can be in prison paul was in prison and he wrote philippians do you know what he wrote Woe is me! No, you know what he wrote? Rejoice always, I will say it again. Rejoice. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me he 's got his eyes in the storm, like Peter walking on the water on Christ. John is like Peter taking his eyes off Christ and he 's sinking in his unbelief in his not unbelief, but his his uh doubt, so he goes to the right source um but We tend to doubt when there's those storms, don't we? And Jesus is the voice in the storm. Jesus is the calm in the storm. But we have to go through them because storms occur because we live in a fallen creation. This side of heaven, there will be death, sickness, sadness, grief, whatever it may be. There are people, a person I talked to today, had a horrible thing happen to her sister. She was murdered. And wondered, where's God? And so we're going to talk about that uh, as time goes on, Sherry and I, with this person. But um, no wonder John the Baptist is wondering, did I get it wrong? Is the plan of God working out? But when there's that doubt... Satan comes in and starts pushing, okay? And so we have to rely on what we know in God's word. Well, what do we we know? First of all, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that we are saved, that he is there with us, that he answers and hears prayer, that he loves you. And we can't imagine, but Romans 8.28 is still in the Bible, that God, we know that God causes us all things to work together somehow for good to them that love god who are the called according to his purpose what does that mean it means that if i break both my legs and end up in the hospital bed for 11 weeks there's a reason god is not in heaven going what happened he broke both his legs god may be behind the broken legs to teach me something, to make me humble. Maybe I'm supposed to meet Harold in the bed next to me, uh, in the other person in my room, not in bed with me, but, in the, <laughs> um, and I'm supposed to witness to him for Christ. Who knows? Or there's a nurse I'm supposed to talk to, or a doctor, who knows? Trusting God is tough in a dungeon, right? Paul stays tuned in. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. I know how to have everything and I know how to have nothing. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay, let's keep rolling. We have more time. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay, on Zoom, is anyone awake at all? At home, on a couch, you know. Okay, it does happen. All right, back to the text. So that's the question. Jesus replies, How dare you doubt? Is that what it says? No, it's a really calm answer. Go back. He's talking to the disciples. And report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. In other words, are these everyday occurrences? No. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the wealthy and the powerful. Wrong. To the poor. All predicted in the Old Testament, by the way. Now in the book of Luke, this exact occurrence is recorded. And Luke remembers or researches and adds something Matthew does not. Luke adds that at that very moment when they ask the question, there are healings that go on. All these things we just read about. In And the the disciples who asked, we're here from John, and he wants to know, are you the one or is there somebody else? And Jesus basically says, Joe's paraphrase, I'll be right with you. Bring him in. And the guy that can't walk starts to walk, and the blind guy can see, and the demon-possessed guy that's screaming and yelling ends up in his right mind. And the woman brings her dead son, and he touches him, and he comes to life. And Jesus preaches a little sermon and turns to them and says, now, to your question, Go tell John what you just saw and just heard firsthand. You say, well, I didn't see it, but we're reading evidence from eyewitnesses, Matthew, Mark, which is really the gospel of Peter, dictated by Peter to Mark. Luke, who's a researcher, didn't witness this stuff. He's a Gentile, by the way, but researched it carefully. Read the first part of Luke chapter one. And John, who's the closest eyewitness along with Peter, eyewitnesses. It's all true. Um, this Luke 7 says, in the same hour, he cured many infirmities, afflictions, evil spirits, and sight to the blind. Wow. They got a little show there, didn't they? Wow. Um, let's see. Ah, that was verse four and five. Yes, and even, no, that was four and five. Um, The gospel being proclaimed to the poor, yeah, we already talked about that, is also Old Testament. Okay, verse six is so interesting to me. Blessed is anyone, what does that sound like? One of the Beatitudes, remember? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. No, here it's blessed is the one or anyone who does not stumble on account of me. In a gentle way, he's saying to John the Baptist, John, you're stumbling, you're tripping over me. The word stumble is the word scandalizo in Greek. It means to be scandalized over me. Remember, there are two realities, or maybe more than two there's the real reality of who and what Jesus is and what he's supposed to do, and there's my expectation. He better, this Jesus you're telling me about, Chris, he better come through for me and I need a job. And he, he Who are we to demand that? He might make you wait, because that's where faith gymnasiums occur, right? When you're waiting. John doesn't realize he's in the faith gymnasium and he's not working out. He's not praying. He's not believing. Go back and report what you see. All those miracles, the the good news is proclaimed to the poor. the, The one who's blessed is the one who doesn't stumble on account of me. Jesus is a stumbling stone, Old Testament, where some people stumble over the stone, and some, the stone is the cornerstone, the most important stone in the whole building, of a person's life, of the Christian church, but some Old Testament are crushed by the stone. It's all, what are you going to do with the stone, with Jesus Christ, the rock, if you will. So uh, so this scene is very active. Look at verse seven. As John's disciples were leaving, so they're packing up their bags. They're going to tell John when they get, wouldn't you love to hear that discussion? We went, we asked the question, what did he say? You're not going to believe what we saw, John. This guy's the real deal. We saw so many miracles. He's the real deal. Okay. I'm hoping we can get to uh, that verse about, uh, yeah, verse 11, but I doubt we'll do it tonight. Unless I talk really fast. Okay, let's go. As John, verse 7, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. And then he's going to quote uh, Old Testament. Okay. What's a reed swayed by the wind? Around that area, there were tall, grassy weeds that were swayed so easily, a little breeze could sway these reeds. He's saying, Is that what you went out to see? Kind of a wimpy guy that just goes with the, puts his finger in the wind and goes, What's the public opinion? Oh, uh, transgender. Uh, okay. Yeah. That's what I'm for. Yeah. Me too. Um, what's uh, Oh, okay. Yeah, that's what I'm for. He's not that. He's the opposite. In fact, he's the winds swaying some reeds, right? What did you go out to see? You think he was a reed swayed by the wind? If not, obviously, verse 8, what did you go out to see? A man in fine clothes? No, those are the guys in palaces. It's a sort of a subtle dig against Herod Antipas, who had him in prison. If you ever eat in an Italian restaurant, antipas, antipasto, eat. no, I'm just, I made that up. Jim's Italian back there. You know I'm making that up, right? Um, bad joke. Um, John the Baptist isn't dressed in fine clothes. In fact, he's dressed in weird clothes, isn't he? Rough clothes, not fine clothes. Just like Isaiah, uh, Elijah was, by the way. No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. But then what did you go out to see? A prophet. He's asking the rhetorical question was john the baptist a prophet is he a prophet you're going to get it from the lips of jesus is he yes and more than a prophet this is the one who about whom it's written i will send my messenger ahead of you that's god the father talking to god the son i will send my messenger john the baptist ahead of you jesus who will prepare your way jesus before you jesus that's malachi john the baptist is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets for this reason. They all said, in one way or another, in the future, there's this Messiah guy that's gonna come. Look for him. John gets to go, here he is, folks, right? He gets to see him, but John the Baptist never gets to see the cross or the miracles, he hears about both, well, he dies before the cross, but he hears about the miracles. He never gets to see the cross. More importantly, he never gets to see the resurrection. John the Baptist is a great prophet, the greatest of all the prophets, better than Elijah, better than Jeremiah. Yes, Moses, yes, but he doesn't have what you have. That's why the least in the kingdom is greater. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit permanently living inside of you. Translation, God from up there now lives in little old you, permanently. That's an astounding thing. We take it for, yeah, hey, I got the Holy Spirit and I got indigestion yesterday from the tacos. You have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you to illumine, illumine his word, to be a louder conscience. Don't do that, Harold. It's wrong. You know it's wrong. Okay, Lord. To make the Bible come alive for you. If you're a teacher or a preacher, of the word, or an evangelist, he's speaking through you, and you are all of those. When you talk to somebody in the supermarket, guess what? You're not Billy Graham, but you're whoever you are, and tell them. Okay, we're out of time, and most of you are asleep anyway. We got to pick this up next time, um, because we got to get to verse 11, um, and him being the messenger, and what that means, and what the message is. Okay, let's close with prayer, and we'll get out of here. Thank you, Father, for this time we could spend studying your word. It is spiritual food. And I pray that each one was nourished, that we've learned and we've grown. Lord, some of these people listening to the sound of my voice are in the dungeon to one degree or another. And it's easy to doubt. Help us to have the faith that says, like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him in his goodness, in his faithfulness, that it's all worth it. Thank you, Father, that despite persecution, we are your emissaries, your ambassadors, and when someone treats us well, it's a reward for them if we're treated well because we're a Christian. On the other hand, if we're treated poorly. You take it personally. We love you, Father. Help us to examine our own top 10 list of most important things in our lives and figure out if you're number seven or eight. And either way, that's wrong. Help us to make you number one and to understand that there's no greater person or thing than your love for us. Bless these truths to our hearts and minds. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know on the other side of the room. Very important. And those of you on Zoom, thanks for being here. God bless. Hope to see you next time and I